0: This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Welcome to Lends Me Your Ears. I'm Stephen Cook, arts reporter for The Chronicle Herald here in Halifax. I'm Karsten Knox, a blogger at Flaw on the Iris at HalifaxBloggers.ca, and the movie guru at CTV Morning Live. This is
1: a movie podcast where we look at some current films and then examine some older titles that might be tangentially related, and hopefully you'll learn something about some films you might not have seen before. This week on Lens Me Your Ears, if you get the creepy crawlies easily, check out. Because we're going to Bugtown. So, yeah, this week on uh, Lens Me Your Ears, we're, we're looking forward to talking about bugs in the movies of all shapes and sizes and descriptions. Because, uh, of course, the big movie this, uh, this past week was Ant-Man. And uh, the latest installment in the Marvel franchise. And, uh, you know, of course, these have always been something to look forward to. They always have that kind of Marvel touch of humor and action. And then certainly uh, this one with Paul Rudd stepping into the Ant-Man suit for uh, the former Hank Pym, the former Ant-Man, certainly had that. And uh, I, I uh, this is one of the ones that I've really been looking forward to because this is a character I always kind of had a fondness for as a kid.
0: I am a big fan of what Marvel does. I have to say, I've I've really enjoyed a lot of their past films i i, I wouldn 't say I love all of them but but just the the effort and the continuity to connect this shared universe has is really impressive and then the the uh, the talent involved the humor as you say even the intelligence of of bringing really top quality fantasy adventure to the screen i don 't think i 've ever seen it done with this kind of of uh, of just connection between all the films i, I mean you know i i, I can't i can 't uh, I, generally I'm, I'm a big fan of the Marvel Project, I'll just say that much uh, I, I didn't love Ant-Man and and I'll tell you why uh, I, I appreciate a lot about it and I, I like the way it, it, it feels like part of the overall universe but I just felt like I don't know, it's hard It's hard not to think that some of the problems with the film which I think are kind of in the way it's assembled and, and a kind of mid-act mid problems or, or central act problems aren't a result of, of the quote-unquote troubled production, which mm. we've certainly read a lot about. Edgar Wright shepherded this project for years. It was his baby right up until close to they, the time they went to camera. And then he bailed like in the 11th hour, and they brought in Peyton Reed to to carry it through. And, uh, you know, and I, I, I got to think that, that some of that uh, uh, made for a bit of a muddle. In this film, yeah, I,
1: I, and I, I think if you look closely enough, you can probably see where the the tonal shifts are, yeah, from one to the other. I do think that um, that the film as a whole holds together pretty well. All things considered, it doesn't. I mean, obviously, it wasn't two different directors in filming, uh, and and that you know Reed is able to do humorous stuff and and doesn't have that different a vision from, from Wright's. But uh, but then, of course, Paul Rudd and Adam McKay came in and punched up the script yeah. as well. Yeah. So you you do get sort of beneath the action, you get these conflicting senses of humor as well, um, you know, with, with different scenes from from, from sort of straight-up character humor to more absurd situational stuff, which is kind of uh, Edgar Wright's stock and trade. So, uh, and, I, and I was... I was trying not to look for those too much. I just kind of wanted to enjoy the experience. You know, I got to see an IMAX 3D, which is always a fun thing. And uh, I thought the format was well suited to it then. You know, especially the the scenes where, oddly enough, the scenes where it gets small look great on the bigger screen. Uh, <laughs> yeah, oddly, yeah. Oddly enough. So, um, you know, the overall experience was a pretty satisfying one for me. I, I and I'm not. You know, I've said it before. I'm not the biggest Marvel fan. Oddly enough, I I grew. You know, it all depends what you grew up with. I was a DC guy uh-huh. growing up. But uh, you know, and I. I I noticed how how similar Ant Man was to a DC character, the Atom. Uh, right, you know, right. and uh, you know, but that's why I kind of appreciate these Marvel movies so much because, you know, DC would never take a chance on a on a smaller. Uh, character like that. You know, so far with the big screen, they've tried to keep it to kind of Batman and Superman, and now we're getting Batman versus Superman. <laughs> I
0: think maybe, I'm. don't quote me on this because I don't watch it regularly, but I think maybe the Atom has shown up on the TV series, The Flash I or, believe so, or yeah. Green Arrow, one of those ones. Yeah. yeah,
1: obviously they're taking more chances with the TV shows, yeah. and but then so is Marvel with things like Daredevil on Netflix and so on and uh, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. So, uh, you know, I kind of wish uh, that, uh, you know, that maybe DC would come up with a Metal Men movie or Doom Patrol or something oh, yeah, like that. That you would know? be awesome. Like, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, it maybe even somehow mix up the kind of the Grant Morrison versus the kind of more nostalgic retro version. I don't know. But but certainly, uh, like, I, you know, if, if you told me five years ago there'd be a Gal- Guardians of the Galaxy movie, I would have told you you were crazy. Like, yeah. Why would they pick well, such I, obscure I to, property? I, and I, yet-
0: yeah, I got to give Marvel credit where it's due. Like, the, the fact that they have plumbed their back catalog for some of the most obscure heroes you <laughs> Has has allowed for a, a difference in tone between the films. So even though there's this general universe where all these characters live, uh, it, it, yeah, I, yeah, I totally agree. What that's one thing they they do well is has been upending expectations by by bringing out characters you wouldn't necessarily expect to see on the big screen, and and for the most part, doing a great job. I, I think my my issues around well, okay, first off, I'll say the things I liked about Ant Man. I thought the performances were all pretty great. Paul Rudd is so likable, and, and Michael. Douglas Fifty years of career. That guy is such a pro. He, I mean, he's he's a little frail looking these days, but boy, he still has that kind of energy, which I, I've always liked about him. He, he's got a real like presence on the screen.
1: Yeah, he's terrific here for um, sure.
0: You know, and I like that there's a kind of retro quality to the uh, to the whole film, I guess, because and we'll talk a little bit about this, about the history of, you know, movies about bugs and and shrinking people, men, women and kids. Uh, <laughs> you know, there there's a lot to enjoy in that. And it feels kind of fun in a in a family entertainment sort of way, which which is generally, you know, a pejorative, but here I felt like you know it's almost like there's a little bit of the the DNA of Herbie the Love Bug or something <laughs> yes, in this. exactly you know the 70s Disney live action uh, movies for families and for kids and I think there, that that kind of thing is part of of this film in, in a way that maybe the more sophisticated Marvel properties don't have
1: yeah it's fun well there's that whole I don't know if you ever saw them but the whole Dexter Riley film saga no with, I've never uh, seen that Kurt Russell plays this
0: alright Right. Okay, kid scientist or yeah. teenage
1: scientist, and you wind up with the world's greatest athlete, the computer that wore tennis shoes. Uh, now you see him, now you don't. That was the invisibility okay. uh, film. <laughs> I actually have a great box set. Uh, well, not box set, but it's like a. It's got all the Dexter Riley movies uh, with Kurt Russell in teenage uh, scientist mode. Plus, it's got the horse in the gray flannel suit where he play some sort of teenage horse expert or something. He yeah. was, he's kind of in a minor role in that one but they, they threw it in as, as a fourth movie and uh, there was another one with all the love bug movies and all that kind of stuff and yeah it does have that kind of kind of feel like they they don't want to um. you know it's funny that they use the, the S word <laughs> in a quote that you know had a different Take in the uh, in the trailer. Oh yeah, I, that's right. That's I thought right. that was kind of funny. Yeah, um, but you know, for it's the most PG part, PG thirteen moments. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. but for the most part, it is pretty fi- family friendly. It's it's comic booky. I yeah. mean, it's 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 uh, it's a movie that's not ashamed to be like a comic book. And, yeah, and uh, I I didn't I didn't mind that so much. Um, no,
0: I think I think if the problems I had with it were, I guess, a feeling of of kind of a patchwork quality to the tone yeah. through the middle, a little bit of the family, the the father daughter melodrama, uh, evangel. Lily is is so grim in places that felt like she had come in from an entirely different kind of movie Uh, I didn't think she was very interesting and I felt like some of the the female characters are a little underrepresented here in the in the film and I guess maybe maybe a little bit despite what I'm saying about them them manifesting and and bringing up new kinds of superheroes. Uh, you know, here we've got a story of a scientist who builds a supersuit, looking for redemption for past misdeeds, who faces off against kind of a misguided nemesis who's a, a former colleague who serves as a reminder of our hero's darker, more aggressive impulse. Mm. I mean, this is a story that Iron Man told, you know, in the three Iron Man movies. You know that 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 that's part of it that felt a little repetitive to me. It's like are we really going down this road again? Yeah, the, the Iron Man thing is
1: good. You know, of course, there's some nods to Stark uh, technology and all that through the course of the film, which are kind of nice. But but there, yeah, the whole idea of the suit and it being used for good or evil is 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 pretty familiar. Um, maybe because that's you know the story had been in the works so long that <laughs> Iron Man had somehow outlapped this this uh, this property. But uh, you know, I guess. But, you know, the shrinking aspect of it is, I guess, what makes it different. I guess. Um, you know, meanwhile, yeah, Evangeline Lilly has Kate
0: Blanchett's wig from uh, Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I guess yeah, yeah. some of the dour attitude that goes And with I it. can understand why she was so pissed off. She should have gotten the suit. And even though there's good reason given in the story, her father wanted to protect her. And, uh, you know, she wanted—he she he had— he had this history with this tech which uh, which he felt a lot of regret about and a lot of responsibility I, I, I mean you know she, I, I thought she was a little too grim but I, at the same time I, <laughs> I sympathized with her
1: yeah it's yeah, well you know it- a lot of the superhero movies are kind of problematic in how they approach female characters. At, at least we get a kind of a denouement with her character that is, is promising and it's and, true. And hopefully, you know, makes for some intriguing uh, story developments, you know, when Ant-Man will return as the, 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 um, the end credit. So promisingly noted, yes, you know, that's kind right. of like, a, like a James Bond movie on you know, James Bond will return in whatever movie. It's nice to see, to see that on the screen. Um, uh, and I, you know, I, I kind of like her as an actress. I mean, I, I was a big fan of Lost. and um, Yeah, I thought she did a good job in the Hobbit movies. Yeah, she's fine in the Hobbit movies. I didn't see Real Steel. I think she's in that. Um, mm. <laughs> but uh, Yeah, neither did I. Neither and, did I. Uh, I don't think I missed too much, but the Rock'em Sock'em robot movie. Um, but uh, I, th- I think she manages to hold her own for the most part, given the f- sort of limited role that she has to play here. But at yeah. least she gets a fair amount of screen time and, you know, potentially could... Uh, move on to more promising things within this franchise uh-huh. uh down the road so that's something to look forward to i suppose um you know i'm not as invested in the the comic universe of marvel as, as some so so like like i said some of the like the iron man similarities didn't bother me so much and i pretty much loved all the shrinking stuff and all the ant right. stuff and all the all the bug stuff i thought was really well done um and, you know, just from that, that first moment when he's in the bathtub and then he shrinks and, you know, goes down the drain, all that kind of stuff. I I, I really enjoyed that stuff. Maybe I wish there was a bit more of it or that it came earlier in the film. It's, it's, it's just a shade over two hours. I don't know that it needed to be, but then I say that about a lot of movies, Yeah. but for something that's, you know, supposed to be fairly swift moving and, you know, have that kind of splashy comic book feel, um, you know, I, I felt maybe they could have got to the shrinking stuff a lot sooner. But, but you know, again, they're they're establishing the character and set, you know, the, so many of these movies have to spend so much time setting everything up, you know, because they're kind of counting on a lot of people going to this movie and not having a clue who Ant-Man is, you know, yeah. just, just knowing that it's a Marvel movie. Uh, you know, that's,
0: it's, it's, it's becoming
1: kind of like a fast food brand. You just go knowing what you're going to get.
0: Yeah. Kind of in Yeah. And that's, advance. A, that's good and bad. I mean, I and think, it, it's, yeah, it is. I think it's good if they are able to maintain the quality of it and, uh, and, you know, keep the variety still within a certain branding that uh, allows for a certain kind of entertainment. And I don't think that they're in danger of like, you know, completely ruining it. I, I think, no. I think, I think they're still managing that, but I would say, I still felt that this was a little bit of a lesser entry and it might be just because it's it's separate from some of the other stuff going on but I didn't come out of, it, of the movie the way I did out of Guardians of the Galaxy think, thinking that I had seen something that was particularly no. different and uh, and stirring and <laughs> emotional in some ways yeah. uh, you know but I, I wanted to before we, we sort of wrap up with, with Ant-Man I did want to give a shout out to, to supporting character actor Michael Pena uh, who is just terrific in this he plays a character Lewis and uh, two t- two times I think he has he, he forwards the plot by, yes. <laughs> by explaining something very specifically at, through the way he talks and then we sort of flash back to these various scenes of people talking to each other as he's explaining it, and I, I'm not sure if I'm doing a great job as uh, telling sort of how how they do it, but it's it's a true delight. It's actually one of my favorite parts of the film is is his explaining how information travels from person to person in order for him to get an understanding about like a heist, a possible heist idea.
1: Yeah, I love those scenes. Uh, those feel like Edgar Wright kind of moments to me. Like oh. I, like I had this vis- like a vision of that be the sort of thing that Nick Frost would would do and totally movie, telling to Simon Pegg or something like that. <laughs> um, you know, I, I might be surprised to learn that it wasn't who knows, but, uh, but it had that kind of feel, that kind of multi-layered thing that, that Edgar Wright can do and then tie it into stuff later on in, in the film. Um, you know, and I, I guess maybe we should talk about Paul Rudd briefly before we move on, but uh, I, I like how they just dialed him down ever so slightly, or he dialed himself down. You know, he's got real world problems in terms of his daughter, you know, trying to wanting to be the good dad and all that kind of stuff, and and uh, so he's not quite the Weisenheimer you'd expect. You know, it's it's because you know, like I look at Chris Pratt and Guardians of the Galaxy versus the Chris Pratt we got in uh, Jurassic Park, sure, where he's kind or Jurassic of, World, the Jurassic World rather. Yeah, um, you know, th- where you know, uh, he in that movie he's kind of dialed down to almost <laughs> zero personality wise. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, he's he's a good st- solid leading man, leading action man, but but uh, some of the character you'd expect from him is kind of gone it feels his role feels kind of generic here we still get that kind of paul rudd esque character but um you know he he's he's shaded it a little bit and i i I really appreciated the way they did that especially considering he and adam mckay were, were working on the script you expect them to kind of punch it up and actually it's kind of unexpected how they kind of fit him into the into the suit and uh you know he still has lots of funny dialogue and stuff but it's not the, the, the purpose of his the through line of his character,
0: yeah, no, I agree i agree he's he's Paul Reddy is one of the most likable leading guys around i've even movies of, that he's been in i've hated i've always liked him yeah and uh, and he definitely still has that in this, but yeah there's this he's his coloring if you want to use that as a word to describe character is a little more muted mm. and uh but i think I think it works for this, and I think he's still likable, and he still provides the sort of heroic. Uh, incentive that uh that that the movie needs right
1: well uh, watching uh, ant man of course made me uh realize my love of insect movies goes a lot deeper <laughs> than, than some people might suspect i i uh, I got the sudden urge to watch uh the original shrinking man movie, which of course is the incredible shrinking man and which has a fight with a tarantula in it, and of course also other giant bug movies from uh from that period of the 1950s Them and, and Tarantula and we watched uh, some of that stuff uh, on the weekend and, and uh, watching Ant-Man made me think that uh, maybe maybe we should get around to another giant insect movie it's been a while and the technology uh, on display in Ant-Man certainly was impressive with the flying ants and the hordes of ants Sure, yeah, absolutely kind of, you know working together to to help, help him achieve his goals uh, you know, I never thought I'd feel you know, emotional loss about a flying ant, but yeah, ant- they, they Ant-Man pulled got off. us there. They and, pulled it off. And they that... did
0: have one giant insect. One insect, one ant got huge Yeah, that's Ant-Man, right. You know, and then got away. So who, who could say, you know, what might... Yeah, maybe there might...
1: will be a, an offshoot. Uh, but I, I do love a good giant bug movie. It seems like we haven't had one in a long time. um you know another uh, starship troopers which we'll talk about later on but but uh you know they really did have a fascination with with big bugs in the, in the 1950s in movies both good and
0: terrible <laughs> well it was i think it was that whole uh- atomic anxiety thing inevitably these creatures show up the monster movies where where some some atomic test has happened in the desert and as a result them the the giant ants attack you know and and I I I enjoyed them I hadn't seen it before Uh, I, I enjoyed how much of a procedural it was basically cops are wandering they find a little girl wandering in the desert she doesn't really have much of a story I assumed she'd play more a bigger part in the plot but she does get to say the title of the
1: movie yeah Exactly, so
0: that's important,
1: and it's a creepy visual—a girl walking alone in the desert with this doll with its head caved in. Uh, you know, it was a kind of an eerier thing than I expected from a from a '50s bug movie, and <laughs> and and there's a lot of atmospheric stuff throughout the film that just shows its. Uh, You know, they're operating in a slightly higher level of artistry than your average giant bug movie. Um,
0: (laughs) I agree. It's it's almost like an American Godzilla movie in a a
1: weird way. Kind of. And and the fact that, uh, you know, when we do get to see the ants, there are these pretty great looking models Mm -hmm. that they didn't try to like fake it with you know, micros like photographing ants and then just blowing it up or you know, like um there's a producer named Bert I. Gordon. That was his name. Of course his initials are B. I. G. And uh so and he made a ton of these films where he would just kind of use trick photography to make things look bigger, or you know, like make lizards look like dinosaurs and mm-hmm. that kind of thing and you know uh, there was a one with an attack of some uh, can't remember, some end of the world film there's like an attack by giant locusts and he just had like postcards of like the of the empire state building and then put a big grasshopper on it and kind of right. make it look like the thing was eating the empire state building <laughs> you know and 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 these were actually better than some other films of the time but you know it's it's still kind of obvious um you know in them uh there's a lot of i mean it's you know it's a b picture but it's got kind of an a attention to detail everything the sound of the ants is is very particular a very very cool effect uh you know the 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 giant models that they made are very are very cool and kind of creepy especially when they come bursting through walls and things like that and uh i, I think it was a really groundbreaking film at the time I, I i you know it's hard to to sort of look at it now through in hindsight and realize the impact it had but i
0: imagine this Really creep people out back when it yeah, came out. Yeah, I expect it did, and there it still has some of that creep factor. I enjoyed the plot that takes these uh, desert ants, where they think they've destroyed them, but one turns into a flying ant, a queen, and she gets away and then she decides that Los Angeles is where she's going (laughs) to go to try to restart the colony. And they they let the population of Los Angeles know that there are giant ants beneath their feet living in the sewers. (laughs) And I was amazed at how people took it so well. There was no panic. There was no like, oh, this is ridiculous. Everyone just sort of there's a very this montage of people listening to the news announcer saying, you know, beware of these creatures and stay inside. And, and, And people are just listening very seriously. And it's all taken. It's all, of course, treated very, very very seriously,
1: yeah, pretty much, and it's, and the cast is is pretty game. We've got uh, James James Whitmore, who's kind of like the poor man Spencer Tracy, as as the cop who like investigates the the child's disappearance, and amazingly stays with the case all the way to Los Angeles. Like you know, with the FBI guy played by um, uh, I think James Arness from uh, from Gunsmoke plays the FBI agent. Uh, and then we get Fess Parker as as the the crazed guy who no one will believe that he saw giant flying ants that he thinks are flying saucers, but are in fact giant ants. Oh yeah, well the flying saucers that's crazy, but giant flying ants sure whatever. Sure, sure.
0: Yeah, and Whitmore gets to to although he's just a cop from from Texas, he gets to handle all these these crazy weaponry from bazookas oh, yeah, yeah, to flamethrowers, and, and...
1: It. <laughs> it's uh yeah because they don't want the word to spread. So oh, well, might as well let this guy in on it. We yeah. have to assume that he was probably in the armed forces. It's the early. Fifty, so he's probably fighting in the Pacific or something uh, in the in the Second World War. But uh, but I don't think they make that explicit. You just have to kind of assume that he knows his yeah, way around go a bazooka, along with it, sure. Um, but uh, I'm I'm assuming this this film was a huge hit. Uh, I you know I, I could see Kitty Matinees just going berserk for this movie. Um, so of course it led to lots of uh, lots of uh, uh, sort of in, 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 you know impersonations and copycats and uh, Tarantula, which we watched. Uh, sort of the the, the highlights of uh, and I saw it as a kid it made a big impression on me watching it on the Great Money movie but uh, you know definitely in the same ballpark story wise but you can tell the budget's a little bit lower the special effects are a little bit cheesier mm-hmm. uh, uh, Jack Arnold who directed it still a fine director he made Creature from the Black Lagoon among other things um, and, so, the and, the, man, and, we'll and the Incredible Shrinking about. Man and the Incredible Shrinking Man so you know he knew he knew how to get the most bang for your for his buck, anyway, in terms of special effects, and uh, you know, and this one has some pretty convincing ones, some pretty good use of like trick photography. Again, in this case, as opposed to models, uh, they went with uh, blowing up a spider, but doing the process photography in such a way where there's the spiders kind of in the foreground and in the background at the same time, and it has a feeling of depth to it, um, you know, in, in ways that uh, you know now they just do it with computers, but here it's like. You know the the trick photography uh to get it to look good it was is a real trick and they they pulled it off I thought
0: well, the spiders of course i think I think he said something like this, I did a little bit of research, and he said that people more people are scared of spiders than they are necessarily of ants, so it makes sense that they would use an actual spider, yeah, and uh yeah, and I gather he used the same spider. In the incredible shrinking man it <laughs> 's an actual sense. same spider three years later when he made the incredible shrinking man and it 's a it 's a big hairy tarantula, and yeah, it is creepy, especially when it gets to be the size of a house yeah you know and and you don 't you don 't see a lot of there are some there's some model work, but only in the close ups of the spider looking through a window of the house otherwise it's it's off in the distance towering over things and 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 yeah there's you know if you have any kind of creepy crawly fear it's definitely there even though the film is from 1954 uh, and and then there's uh, an addition an added bonus of an uncredited Clint Eastwood who shows up at the end as a, <laughs> as fighter, a pilot, pilot. fighter pilot when they send out the the planes to napalm the, the spider that's approaching a small town
1: yeah, it's funny. I you know, I certainly didn't know that was Clint the first time I watched it and he's not in the credits. So, it wasn't until years later where I read somewhere that, you know, I was reading a list of some weird early films that he was in. He was in like Francis joins the Navy about Talking Mule, Joining the Navy. I mean, he was a, he was a contract player. He was one of the last con- studio contract players. At uh, and Universal, and they would stick him in anything they had. Uh, they needed, oh, yeah. you know. In in I think the second Creature from the Black Lagoon movie, he plays a uh, an absent minded lab assistant who's always like finding mice in his pockets. No <laughs> kidding, I know it's crazy. So you know, here here he, he's got the he's got this guy the 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 mask uh, for his fighter jet strapped onto his face the whole time. But you can tell from those narrow squinty eyes who's who's uh, who's who's, <laughs> who's flying that plane.
0: Uh, now, Arnold, uh, Jack Arnold, who who went on to to make uh, the Incredible Shrinking Man from the uh, the novel, the Richard Matheson novel. I was impressed by this film in that it's much more philosophical and much more sort of emotional than it's not just about scares of of giant creatures. It's about a guy who's who has something inexplicable happen to him and he starts to shrink and it really affects his life in a really negative way and he winds up moving into a dollhouse and it affects his relationship with his wife and it's all very, very dark and and and, uh, and quite scary in a way that, but not scary in a, like a scares, jump at you scares horror way, but in a, like a personal tragedy sort of way.
1: Yeah, I I thought uh, this film was, uh, I mean, I thought it was great entertainment the first time I saw it. This one I saw at Wormwoods, Dog and Monkey Cinema years and years ago when they were showing old films uh, on 16 millimeter, I think out of a collection at the University of Brandon in Manitoba. Um, they used to have a regular, they had a huge collection that they would loan out and they were getting some of these things. And I saw stuff like, uh, you know, Yojimbo, this Kurosawa movie and Ingmar Bergman films and so on. So, but they also had some, some great Hollywood films and this is when I got to see in a theater, in a dark room, you know, with a lot of people. So it was great to see people squirming during the spider sequence and all that kind of stuff. But, but um, you know, the, and it does start with that kind of nuclear paranoia thing. He's on a boat and uh, it gets covered in a radioactive cloud. And uh, soon, you know, a few, few weeks later, he's noticing his pants are loose and they slowly build up to him shrinking to the size of, uh, you know, a mouse and then even smaller. So... Uh, and and Richard Matheson uh, wrote the script. Of course, a highly literate uh, science fiction, fantasy, horror writer wrote I Am Legend, which inspired The Omega Man. And then, mm. um, you know, later they made a version under the proper title with Will Smith. You know, so clearly his work endures. And in fact, this would be a great one to remake if Ant-Man wasn't so recent in theaters because I, uh, I think this film was obviously a big influence on uh, Jack Kirby and Stan Lee when they were coming up with Ant-Man. I think this, this film is kind of... Uh, Kind of the uh, the lodestone for that character as we watch this guy get smaller and smaller and cope with uh, you know problems he wouldn't have enca- thought you know dealing with a spider or a mouse or a cat or you know trying to get food out of a mouse trap and all that kind of stuff um, you know I assume there's probably some deeper themes running through this aside from the whole nuclear panic there's the whole idea of the the emasculation of the American male after the probably. Second World War yeah, yeah that makes sense you know
0: that makes sense I one thing I really enjoyed was how there is a there was actually one plot point. Uh, from Ant-Man that is very much in this one about what if you couldn't stop shrinking? Yes, and then you get lost in this sort of microverse, which uh, which could be endless, and you couldn't come back from it. And this this sort of theme does return in in Ant Man, and it's very much a part of the Incredible Shrinking Man too.
1: Yeah, and that's got to be a direct nod. Absolutely, like, like it's they're so similar those sequences, yeah. and uh, that was one of my favorite parts of Ant Man actually the the scene where he has to go subatomic, yeah, um, to get through a titanium uh, plate or whatever um, and uh, you know as soon as I saw him do it I thought oh it's Incredible Drinking Man which made me want to see the movie again because I right. you know I had this memory of course it's quite different you know it certainly doesn't have the the benefit of modern special effects but it's still pretty affecting like it's, it's you know you really feel for that guy as he just kind of becomes a a Micronaut, if you will, to use one of Jason's <laughs> favorite uh, toys.
0: Yeah, so, so one, one in which is, is, if they can bring the Transformers back from Oblivion yes, and Micronauts. Micronauts, I would love to see a Micronaut movie. Put it out there in the world.
1: But uh, definitely, de- you know, the, the great thing about The Incredible Shrinking Man is it has a great script, unlike a lot of uh, a lot of these kind of science fiction quickies of the time. You know, Arnold... Uh, put a lot of thought into the process photography. Not all of it works. Some of the, the traveling mats are, are a bit clunky. But uh, I think for the time, it's to be commended. And, and Matheson's script has a, has a lot more going on in it than your average monster movie.
0: So as I was doing a little research for insect movies i was reminded of a few others uh i didn't see is it empire of the ants is that another one that's was was that the the joan collins one i didn't yeah see that.
1: i i can't remember if that was a theatrical film or a tv movie i, I saw when i was a kid and, i
0: remember it i remember know, seeing it, it but i didn't see out, it this but... time yeah that's one i'm gonna have to go back and watch another time uh, but i did see kingdom of the spiders from 1977 uh, which is a lot like a movie that some people may already know arachnophobia from 1990 which i was less of a Fan of arachnophobia, but King of the Spiders is campy in a way that that is wonderful, wonderfully entertaining. Uh, Bill Shatner plays a guy named Rack Hansen, who is a veterinarian living out in the on the you know in the wilderness somewhere, and uh, and this is actually a an environmental movie. There's a sort of a message that's pretty clear. The tarantulas have banded together in order to <laughs> bring down bigger prey because the pesticides have encouraged them to do it because the pesticides have killed a lot of their natural prey so they, they've kind of decided somehow the spiders have decided well our best chance for survival is to, is to gang up on calves and people and eat them and then we will have a better chance for our future. I mean, it's pretty outrageous, but and, and the the special effects are so so. But uh, they used actual tarantulas yes. in the film, which uh, which is which is is quite creepy. And and yeah, and, and it you know, and there's lots of William Shatner standing around in in, <laughs> in with a cowboy hat on, looking trying to convince as like a you know a guy from from the woods, the backwoods, and he's he's not all that convincing, but boy, is he fun to watch. Yeah, I, I think. This film,
1: in particular, uh, uh, contributed more to my generation's heebie-jeebies about uh, giant spiders and bugs and things, uh, and, and large, certainly large bugs like like tarantula. I mean, you never see tarantulas; like nobody had them as a pet when I was a kid. Right. So your 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 influence would come from films like this. I mean, there was a whole slew of of sort of nature gone wild films in the seventies. It was like a, it was a whole genre onto itself. And uh, you know, this is one of the more fun um, examples of it for sure. Uh, you know, I, I recall it having a great supporting cast. The names are coming to mind at the moment, but, but, well, Woody, um, Woody Strode is one of them. Oh, of well, them. there you go. You know. <laughs> it's funny. Well, we got Woody Strode who, you know, was in like Sergio Leone movies. And I think in them we had Dub Taylor who was in some, uh, was in some, uh, uh Sam Peckinpah movies. Oh yes. Like, these guys are definitely picking up some, some change on the side, uh, from, from being in these kind of movies. Um, but that whole nature got, I mean, it was kind of like in the 50s, it was, it was the nuclear fear, you know, yeah. which, which fueled things like Incredible Shrinking Man and them and so on. And in the 70s, it was more of an environmental thing, like the, the kind of early uh, fear that, that the damage we're doing to the environment is going to come and bite us on the butt. Um it's funny. Weirdly, you'd think there'd be more films along that line today. Yeah. there's been a couple in the last few years, but not on the same scale there was in the 1970s. It's funny, um, you know. But that's when people were really starting to take notice of ecology, and, and look, you know, obviously, you know, it didn't bleed through strongly yeah. enough. But there certainly had more of an impact on entertainment. I mean, there was um, there's at least one other giant uh, spider movie from that period. There's actually one called. Uh, Giant Spider Invasion, which came out around the same time. Okay. And they actually built these giant spiders on Volkswagen chassis <laughs> and just kind of drove them around awesome. the countryside. It was like this low budget indie film made in Wisconsin or someplace uh-huh. in the seventies. And uh I I'm pretty sure that was the name of it. And that but they look utterly ridiculous. Yeah. But you know, if you wanna you wanna see a, a goofy giant spider movie, that's that would be my first stop. But then yeah, then there's okay. stuff like this and, and uh The Swarm I think is another film. But uh you know, killer bees, because yes. you know, we're all yeah. worried about killer bees. It doesn't
0: seem much of a reason. I saw I saw the swarm, and it doesn't seem much of a reason for the killer bees to get so pissed off with people, but but apparently it's been coming because Michael Caine says so. Yes. I think one <laughs> of the pleasures of the swarm, I mean, it's long. It's like two and a half hours, but yeah. one of the pleasures is watching Michael Caine deal with this material with a straight face. Like He really is. He's the center of it. He's the scientist who has all the answers, and he and Catherine Ross are Getting together and figuring it out, and telling the military people like Richard Widmark to you know to what the problem is, and and uh, and he doing it with he has so much dialogue and exposition to get across with be and be totally serious about it, and you can just see him him sort of struggle with with <laughs> the the dialogue and with the material, and you know there are some genuinely creepy moments where the swarms of sure. bees attack a family having a picnic. You know, Irwin Allen made a lot of disaster movies, but this is much more in that kind of disaster. Movie mode, and uh, you know, there's lots and lots of of recognizable. Actors, yeah, Henry
1: Fonda's in there. Yeah, totally.
0: Uh, uh, And even Fred McMurray. McMurray, apparently, it was his last his last role. Slim Pickens, you know, Lee Grant, Ben Johnson, Richard Chamberlain. You know, these are big (laughs) names of the day, and they're all just they're there. You know, cashing their check and doing doing the thing,
1: doing their most. And yeah, and and again, the the carbon copy thing comes into play. There's another movie came out just after, or just around that time, uh, called The Deadly Bees, uh, which is just awful it's just (laughs) terrible you know just you know be instead of like a swarm it'd be like oh five
0: bees look at right yeah Um, yeah.
1: it might be one that was like kind of rushed into production when they heard the swarm was being Uh made and got it out ahead of time or something like that 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 was a common practice back then and happens more recently in the direct-to-video kind of age but um, you know people were convinced that that insects were out to get us there's a great film along those lines called phase four Um, uh, which, you know, isn't terribly well known. is the, as far as I know, the only directorial effort from Saul Bass, who oh. of course is best known for his graphics for like movie posters and movie credit sequences. Right, it was a
0: little earlier in the 70s though, I think.
1: Was yeah, it, it was a little, it predates like The Swarm. And, mm-hmm. uh, it, you know, it's kind of like the 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 genesis of, of those kinds of films. And in this case, it's like a breed of super intelligent ant that can, you know, build these structures and, you know, get ready for the forthcoming apocalypse, I guess. And, and, uh, and it's a lot more scientific in in its approach. You know, they did a lot of research into ant behavior and that kind of Uh thing. And, you know, try to logically take it to the next level. I don't think the swarm devoted Quite so much energy to <laughs> to its uh, concept, but but Phase Four is a, is a film that certainly deserves more mention, especially given that you know Saul Bass is the only film that he ever made. Um, Wasn't Michael was it Michael Murphy in
0: that? I, I think so. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: And uh, it, you know, it's it's a little more abstract, of course, given Bass's reputation as a visual artist. But uh, it's it's a shame he didn't make more movies. It was. Uh, you know, it was a Paramount release. It was a big budget release. I yeah, I didn't. Here, I but. haven't
0: seen it. I would love to see it. And thanks for mentioning it, because that's one I definitely put on my list uh, that I didn't get to see while I did research for this. Now, now I think we would be uh, uh, it would be a mistake not to mention The Fly hmm. if we're talking about insect movies. I've never seen the original fly from the fifties, which, which I, but I've seen the image of the, the oh, giant, yeah. help me, help yeah, me the giant head. It's pretty great. It's a beautiful
1: film. It's color and shot in cinemascope. And, uh, you know, Vincent Price is kind of a, more of a, a secondary role. It actually takes place in Quebec, which is weird. I mean, <laughs> oh, yeah. know, like I think the the scientist is actually like French Canadian. Right. Um, and it's, a, it's, it's a beautiful looking film too. So, uh, it's, um, it's, it's definitely worth seeing the, the the sequel. There's two sequels from that time period, which where, where it's you know it's a bit of that law of diminishing returns, but they're sort of fun in their own way. But uh, but the original is is great, and 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 the combo of the guy on the fly body on the web, and and, and then the scientist with the giant fly head. I mean, <laughs> those are great, both such amazing bits of imagery from sure. that time period and Well,
0: that's what I remember of it. Yeah. Is those that that imagery has has lasted longer yeah. than the movie. There are a lot of slow parts no In between the highlights. Uh-huh. It's,
1: it's a bit of a, a slow film in spots, but definitely it definitely has a good payoff, yeah. that's for sure. And
0: then Cronenberg got the material and turned it into something entirely oh, yeah. different. Uh, Jeff Goldblum is a scientist working on teleportation technology and uh, figures out how to do it, and he does it one drunken night. He, he teleports from pod to pod, but a fly gets in there with him, and it, the the machinery basically laces him, connects him with the DNA of the fly, and he slowly starts to dis turn at this giant insect. And it's disgusting, but truthfully, it's <laughs> it's the the key relationship is between him and Gina Davis and it's a it's a love story with this added element of I guess, you know, the fear of AIDS and and illness being part of of this 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 really disgusting love story and and it's uh it's if anyone has it hasn't seen it it's really the great i think i think time has shown and history has shown it is the great creepy horror love story romance of of the i, I mean i can't think of any many that are better
1: no it, it's uh I, sometimes i think that as far as cronenberg's filmography goes the film kind of gets looked down upon because it's such a you know, it's probably his most commercially successful film, mm-hmm. uh, but that's not a reason to dismiss it at all. Like, no. in fact, the themes that run throughout his work are probably most strongly stated in this movie, so that you know it deserves uh, to be considered as maybe one of his major achievements. But I always think that maybe its commercial success dulls it in, in some people's minds. But the, but certainly uh, that whole uh, you know destruction of the body and. Uh, from within or by science or what have you, you know, is as strong here as it is in anything. Yeah. And, uh, you know, like you say, like that fear of disease of what, that maybe we're destroying ourselves through technology from the inside out. Uh, you know, uh, you know, I, I'd love to know some of the things that, that inspired him, uh, along the way to develop the film the way he did. Like, I think of things like, you know, where, where there's things that we thought were good for us turned out to be not so good for us. Like you know you think of things like thalidomide and you know, smoking yeah you know, this,
0: yeah i'm reminded of woody all allen in, in Annie hall everything that that our parents told us are good for us is bad you know red meat the sun college <laughs> exactly <laughs> but uh cronenberg i mean it's part of his 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 human body horror and then relationship with technology is a big part of a theme throughout his movie sure. for years and years
1: but uh it's certainly as as uh, grizzly as the fly is it's certainly probably more accessible than videodrome for a lot of people well that's true yeah or
0: even naked lunch which i yeah. Of course, has bug typewriters. Sure. <laughs> um, I should mention I have a little personal story connected to The Fly, which is that when I worked in film production and television production in the 90s, I was a production assistant on a straight to a movie of the week called Night of the Twisters. Uh uh, starring John Schneider, which was rushed into production after the Twister movie, the success of the Twister movie. And it was shot in Kleinberg in north of Toronto, a small town that someone thought to build a studio down in the valley outside town and uh, near, I guess, a couple of farms. It's very rural, but uh, they shot. I know they shot some of the interiors of uh, three men and a baby in there, Mm. and they shot some of the interiors of the fly. And I don't know if this is has anything to do with it, but when we were there, and I believe it was end of summer, it was September, October, the production offices were full of flies. They were just everywhere. Wow. And I remember thinking to myself, I wonder if there's somehow some relation to the fact the fly was shot here, or is it just the fact that there's a farm around the corner? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Sometimes
1: this all that's all
0: it takes. That's sometimes it is. Uh, also, I wanted to mention is a movie called Matinee, uh, Joe Dante's Matinee. And it isn't actually really a giant bug movie, but there's a movie within the movie called Mant, which <laughs> yeah. makes it absolutely worth seeing. It's it, it probably like uh, maybe a quarter, not maybe that's two a fifth of the film is this, Black and white movie within a movie because it's set in a, in a theater and they're watching this this whole group of kids are watching this this monster movie from the past and they basically do a replica of those kinds of them kinds of movies and uh, oh it's so much fun
1: oh it's definitely an homage to to The Fly and Tarantula and, yeah you know I believe uh, MANT features uh, William Shallert who is in them and I think he's all, we saw in Tarantula too I think he plays a doctor he plays an ambulance uh, driver at the start of them and then he's uh, he plays a doctor in I think in Tarantula so you know he clearly you know obviously he was well chosen for for that movie you know um and uh it's it's great uh, that uh, the I thought the parody is dead on uh is a movie I'm really fond of cuz I just kind of learned about William Castle the producer um that the film kind of emulates in the in the um in the Goodman character. Um, and John Goodman is playing this ca- producer who likes to have a gimmick in every film, whether it's putting joy buzzers under the seats or having things jump out of the screen, like, like a skeleton come out of the screen. And that's exactly what William Castle did. Like okay. It's, it's not even thinly veiled. It's, it's clearly who his character right. is meant to be. Right. Um, you know, he called his autobiography, step right up. I'm going to scare the pants off America or something like <laughs> that. So, you know, definitely part Carney, part film producer. And, uh, he never really made a monster movie that I can think of mostly more horror and shocker kind of films there's a few with kind of a supernatural element but but nothing along those lines but uh, you know clearly the, the spirit of the thing is the same and uh, you know having a guy turn into an ant is certainly one of the great uh, classic 50s sci-fi uh, kind of storylines <laughs>
0: So before we depart our visit amongst bug movies, there are a few more more recent films I thought were worth mentioning. One is Angel of, Angels and Insects from 1995. And this is Philip Haas written and directed, uh, actually written by Philip and Belinda Haas. And it's based on an A.S. Byatt novel, more for Eugenia. Eugenia. And uh, it's, it's a real British period drama. So, you know, how would, thinking about... British period drama and, and bug movies. How do these things connect? Well, as a matter of fact, it's about a naturalist who, in Victorian England, who gets adopted into this sort of wealthy family. He's a bit shy and awkward, play, played by Mark Rylance. Uh, but he's fascinated by insects, and he especially butterflies. He spends much of his time cataloging the insects insects in the collection of the father of the house while he's falling in love with the daughter meanwhile the governess played by Kristen Scott Thomas actually the daughter I should mention is Patsy Kensett former pop star and turned actress Uh, Kristen Scott Thomas is the governess of the many children born to this new couple and she takes an interest in the work and becomes sort of an apprentice but the bride is hiding a terrible secret and if you I don't think you have to look too hard to figure out what that Mm-hmm. Problem is between between this 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 couple and and the the very jealous and aggressive brother of the family. Now, this film won an award at Cannes for the best director and then an Academy Award for best costumes. And it really does have an amazing look. The costumes are multicolored in a way that you don't generally see in a in a Victorian uh, you know a film about Victorian times in the UK and I I suspect there's some some creative license taken into this but uh, but it, it, the film is basically comparing the society of that time to insect society and 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 as, as a result it's you know the color of the butterflies is 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 compared to the costumes that these people wear and uh, it's actually quite beautiful to see but it's the film does feel a little bit hallucinogenic it, it could be an influence of maybe David Lynch or even Peter Greenaway <laughs> and there's certainly a it's certainly a much lustier and more intense film than most costume dramas from the Merchant Ivory, you know, Definitely. stable.
1: Yeah. I, I saw this in the theater when it came out and uh, I remember being quite struck by it visually, certainly seeing it on the big screen. And, um, I'd add uh, maybe Ken Russell as an influence in yeah. there as oh, well. Oh yeah. That's a good you know, one. Sure. Um, you know, just that, that, that look at society, because you know, he had been, he'd kind of been looking at sort of retro Upper class society and films like The Rainbow and and, uh, and you know Gothic, where we're you know it's it's the folks who went on to create Frankenstein and Lord Byron and so on, with a you know great cast and and Lair of the White Worm. So he was definitely
0: oh yeah, I'd forgotten about Lair of the. White oh, Worm. I love that film. You know, <laughs> yeah. he was definitely into the
1: underbelly of uh, of uh, upper class English society by tying it into these kind of either supernatural or kind of horrific tales. Um, and this is. Kind of in that ballpark, although maybe not quite as horrific as, as some of those films. But, uh, you know, it's, it's interesting to see the, the kind of the
0: tight bodice uh, society... With with uh, with that kind of insect undertone to it, yeah, absolutely. And and you mentioned uh, Starship Troopers. We should say <laughs> that uh, that it's a, it's a genuine bug movie. It's a bug, sure. bug hunt movie. Uh, <laughs> really. Paul Verhoeven or Verhoeven, freely adapting Robert A. Heinlein's novel about these young and beautiful Argentine soldiers in this fascistic society sent off to space to go hunt down warlike insectoid aliens. Uh, and uh, I actually have a little bit of a of a personal story to tell about. About this movie I was working again In production in Toronto On a series called Earth Final Conflict And ah. uh, we went To the whole production the, the, the office decided to go And see Starship Troopers On the opening night At the Uptown Cinema Which used to be located On Yonge Street near Bloor That's right And uh, Majel Barrett Roddenberry Was one of the producers Of Earth Final Conflict uh, The script was something That her, her uh, former Her husband Gene uh, uh, Roddenberry Had invented And so she was there And she came along with us so we all watched it together and I remember walking out of the cinema and Majel said said to me she said you know I feel bad for the bugs and I said, you know, I think we're supposed to feel bad for the bugs. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's the takeaway from Starship Troopers is that, in fact, those bugs—they may have been a bit aggressive, but uh, but you know, they 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 really they really got their butts kicked. <laughs> yeah, I think
1: it was. I, I think it was maybe supposed to be some sort of early Gulf War analogy or something like that. There's, it might have been. Uh, that, that's certainly a film that I could go back and rewatch any number of times. Um, you know, I think the first time I watched it, I wasn't 100% sure it was supposed to be satire when uh-huh. it started out, but it's Paul Verhoeven. Come on. Yeah. And uh, sometimes sometimes the subversive nature of, of his films doesn't surface on the first viewing. <laughs> yeah. And, and some people yeah. didn't see it at all, I'm sure, but- um, you know,
0: well, I, I, there are people that hate that movie. I mean, I know yeah, I know, there's a group of people that really don't like serious it. Serious Highland fans.
1: Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. There's a, yeah, but it's it's definitely a movie from that period which has aged pretty well. I think it mm-hmm. still stands up, as opposed to another bug movie, uh, Arachnophobia, right. which we, we sort of alluded to earlier. But, uh, you know, a, a comedy that i i sort of remember liking at the time but i suspect is not uh you know i think all the best stuff involved again john goodman shows up as the (laughs) exterminator yeah and i you know i i think he's probably the best thing in the film Uh taking on a bunch of deadly spiders that have come up to the u.s but uh and then there was eight-legged freaks which with david arquette right which came after that yes
0: yeah that's a that's a good one which i guess
1: up the spider quotient but uh Drop the script quotient. <laughs>
0: yeah, Quite severely. and more recently, and this is a complete out and left field thing to mention, but I, I feel like I must. It's a Canadian movie, uh, Denis Villeneuve's Enemy from 2013, from uh, starring Jake Gyllenhaal as a guy who sees his doppelganger in a movie that he watches, and he hunts this guy down and starting a strange codependent relationship with uh, each other, these guys, uh, including uh, us, other actors in the film include uh, Mel- Melanie Laurent, Sarah Gaddon, and Isabella Rossellini. It's a surreal Hitchcockian drama. And out of nowhere, and I still don't, I'm still not sure <laughs> if I understand it, there's these hallucinogenic scenes of Louise Bourgeois spiders hanging over Toronto, these enormous spiders. And then there's the, f- I don't want to spoil what happens in the final scenes of the film, but spiders play a, a role i guess more in a figurative way than any yeah. kind of literal way
1: yeah I, I think it's just his his sort of gradual mental <laughs> or, or degradation I suppose that's when the spiders kind of show up so they're definitely figurative but, <laughs> but it's an, an interesting idea and an interesting use of, of them as kind of imagery and uh, you know my brain of course the, the film is very kind of Cronenberg-esque I mean given the way that it uses Toronto totally, and and uh, you know I think Villeneuve has been quite open in his acknowledgement of, of Cronenberg's influence um, it's not necessarily a completely David Cronenberg-y kind of film, but it definitely gets at that kind of um, urban malaise that often seeps into films of his, like Dead Ringers and so on. And, uh, you know, then I remembered that Cronenberg actually made a film called Spider, uh, oh, which, which right. isn't about bugs per se, but it's about a guy, uh, you know, who's a paranoid schizophrenic or what have you, and and uh, it's shot in London, and a great Ray Fiennes performance. And I, and I suspect that, you know, the... the the Spider refers to as the tenuous webs of his connection to reality more than anything yes but, but uh you know so th- there's an interesting uh connection there i suppose
0: yeah and and William Friedkin recently made a film called Bug about the you know, s- as insects as as sort of a symbol of of mental paranoia uh so yeah they there that's definitely an interesting they've become more figurative in in recent films. I love how we've gone from like the family uh you know four color adventure of ant man to uh to Bugs as <laughs> as the sign of madness.
1: <laughs> well, you know, I, I guess if it's good enough for H.P. Lovecraft, it's good enough for for David Cronenberg. <laughs> Well, before we bug out of here, I just want to mention that uh, we are taking part in a screening by Thrillema here in Halifax of The Burbs, the Joe Dante classic. Of course, Thrillima is the uh, the fun series of uh, B-movies and, uh, and other uh, cinematic delights that was started up by Hobo with the Shotgun director Jason Eisner, and it continues to this day with, uh, with lots of fun movies along those lines. So uh, in honor of that, we've been inspired to watch other comedies that have a dark streak to them. So dark comedies are going to be uh, the theme of our next show. Looking films like Harold and Maud, for example, or maybe Heathers and Gremlins 2 by also by Joe Dante and look at those films that make you laugh and make you cringe at the same time. So we'll see you then
0: Lends Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. Lends Me Your Ears is engineered by Luke Badio and is produced by Dave Anderson and Jason Michael McIsaac. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Check out all of their amazing music, tour dates, and so much more at gypsophilia.org. Discover more great shows on the Village Soundcast Network by going to villagesoundcast.com. We can also be found on Twitter at vsoundcast and on Facebook by searching the Village Soundcast Network. Rate and review us on iTunes and you'll get a shout out on an upcoming show. Send feedback to Lends Me Your Ears podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.